Donald Boylan is the quintessential flying Irishman, having navigated the four corners of the world for the best part of three decades working in aviation management for companies in the Netherlands, Barbados, China, Hong Kong, Vietnam, the UK and of course Ireland. His reputation across all the fields he's worked in is unrivaled and today he's the sitting CEO of Tip Aero. What's so nice about these long form chats on The Flying Irishman is the time and space that we're afforded to learn about a character like Donald Boylan, who up until now has remained too far away from Irish media to ever get the attention he fully deserves. It's episode seven of The Flying Irishman with Donald Boylan. Your role in aviation is one that people who aren't in the business won't know about and won't recognize you because you are very much a man behind the scenes. Do you want to explain to people, first of all, what you would categorize your role in the aviation industry as being over the last 30 years? A man behind the scenes. Well, well known to you, Jarlath, I could start by saying uh, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> I've been an Irishman abroad. Uh, so that's a good transition for what you normally do to what you're doing with me here today. So I've spent, uh, from the mid eighties, uh, you know, post university days, um, uh, my full career essentially abroad, I could split it into two parts, um, up to 2010, where I traveled to the four corners of the globe. And we can talk about that later. Um, and randomly came home. Uh, and then, uh, the last 10, 12 years where I have been based in Asia, primarily in Hong Kong, but to some extent, uh, mainland China, Korea, and Vietnam. And, um, I have been home regularly or with regularity, uh, and, and sensibly for, for family purposes, but, uh, to the man in the background, um, in aviation, you know, I've, uh, I would like to say I, I wasn't always in the background. I, um, I was a wannabe automotive design engineer, uh, who moved into power generation and therefore aero derivatives, um, uh, gas turbines, which are you know, effectively jet engines. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that found my way into the leasing business, uh, like a lot of, uh, people, um, in, in Ireland who are at the, the helm of that business today, uh, in the mid eighties and late eighties with Guinness Pete Aviation in Shannon. And from there, um, I, uh, I've been involved in, uh, probably four to five of what are now the top 10 to 15 aircraft leasing companies, uh, early days as employee, hardworking employee, um, and probably in the background, uh, in the sense that I wasn't at the, at the very le- uh, top leadership. Um, but uh, subsequently as, uh, founder, co-founder, CEO of a number of these businesses and, and maybe to, to really, um, uh, address that man in the background to a large extent, I guess I'm the man that brought the Chinese money to Ireland and, Mm. and, uh, the Chinese now represent, uh, probably five 
of the top 10 to 15 largest leasing company ownerships that are out there. Uh, and we can maybe uh, elaborate on that later. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I it's mean, it's a good way. Good way in. In. Like, like when I when say I the say man in the background, in the background I, I really mean it in terms of people might not understand the role that you you play and you have played in this part of aircraft leasing because aircraft leasing let's be honest though it's not something that's front page of the papers every day you don't turn to the aircraft leasing pages to see what's going on here but really if there was such a set of pages irish people and you specifically would be front and center they'd occupy an awful lot of column inches now some of that is down to ireland essentially developing aircraft leasing when did you first start taking an interest in that side of things? I'm interested in asking this question because that is a bit of a jump, isn't it, from engineer to leasing? It's. Uh, I don't think it is. Really? Strangely <laughs> enough. Um, uh, so the interest, of course, uh, probably... You, know, you, you can, you can uh, talk about when does an interest develop if indeed the uh, precursor to being involved in aircraft leasing was my engineering technical interest, which led me to that, I could probably say that I grew up in Dundrum in County Dublin, uh, one of five kids. I shared a bedroom with two brothers and probably my first interest in things technical or indeed automotive, as I expressed, I was interested in where I was always a light sleeper and still am. I do, you know, I'm one of those kind of six hour people. Um, and it, it's not a, I'm not blowing a trumpet with that. It's just naturally the way I am. And, but I used to wake up early in the morning to the clanking of glass milk bottles from Willie O'Brien of HPE, uh, you know, uh, dairies as we would know them for the ice cream, but they were mm -hmm. our local milk delivery business. And I decided that there was one thing I had to do was to drive that milk float. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because we're all talking about electric vehicles today. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting there around 1970, uh, in suburban Dublin. And you'd get the whir of that um, uh, electric milk float. And I thought that would be my first objective to, to drive that. So whether that was the pilot in me or the engineer in me, uh, it was what I wanted to do. I did manage to finagle it because on Saturday, the, every Saturday, the milkman would come and collect in a, a leather satchel, you know, as typically our mothers would be paying the milk bill. And I knew my own mother was very charming, indeed good looking. And uh, I used my opportunity when Willie was having the chat with my mom to uh, proffer that I could work for him in the mornings. I got the job and within a month I was in the milk float. And it's, it's, it's all onwards and upwards from there. But ultimately, um, I got involved in engineering, mechanical engineering. Um, very much involved in engines, engine design and so forth. And as I said, wanted to be a, uh, automotive design engineer and things sometimes 
fall in a certain way, but I was meant to go and work for the Ford Motor Company and uh, initially in the US. And there was talks of, they were shutting down in Cork, you know, uh, Cork, uh, Ford being, you know, having a, a Cork yes. uh, genealogy or ancestry uh, at, the, at that time. But ultimately I was sent on my merry way to Basilton in Essex. And when I arrived for my first job, um, there was a strike and I spent two weeks not passing the picket, running out of money. I think at about a hundred quid in my pocket. Uh, the B&B had another one or two days to run. And fortunately or unfortunately, the, um, uh, the uh, foreman at, at the, the head of the picket and myself uh, got friendly. I got taken for a greasy spoon breakfast and he offered me, uh, me the opportunity to stay for, with him for a week or two and, and managed to convince me that the last company I should work for was Ford. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the end of my career with Ford. And I ended up going to work for GE in the United States and therefore aircraft engines and from there to Aer Lingus and from there to Guinness Speed Aviation. And that was how my path evolved over three or four years uh, from what might have been uh, a motorsport uh, or automotive career. Uh, to to one in aviation isn't it such a sliding doors moment if that strike doesn't take place who knows where you might be at this moment in time but the ge experience and during that window as you say from the three hops from ge to Aer Lingus to guinness peach aviation there is a bug that bites right very much like the horses that you are now so interested in and invested in and successful with. I feel horse people have a deep, deep grow for it in a way that they nearly can't put into words. But there seems to be the same thing that I come across with aviation people, whether it's uh, Julie Garland, who spoke to us about drones. There's something that gets into you about this. Do you remember that feeling uh, or where you first started to feel your love for aviation? Um, that vocation, like a lot of people, I guess, of my era, depending on where they lived, um, certainly there was the glamour of it, you know, so we, mm. you know, it, they were more glamorous times, you know, a la, yeah. um, uh, um, the kind of Pan Am type image that we have, or the um, the uh, fly um, flying seaplanes. Yes, but it was the technology that appealed to me initially, uh, and the fact that this, you know, these wondrous objects that can, you know, we're sitting there in a tin can basically at thirty five thousand feet. How did that all happen? Um, and what I discovered, I guess, is that, you know, aircraft and aircraft engineering and, uh, and operations and airlines, um, we'd like to blow smoke at the outside world that this is a very innovative, high tech, and indeed as it was glamorous world, but you know, it is like a lot of industries down to, uh, you know, 
analytics, um, mm. reliability, service delivery, conservatism, etc., etc. And but to answer your question, you know, where was that? Was that uh, was that moment? Um, uh, for me, you know, I probably like a lot of people in my era was being, you know, run out by my dad to Dublin airport and, you know, parked up at uh, the side of the air tr- uh, airport, uh, you know, between Ballymun and, um, and Sandry. Uh, I'm sure you may be familiar we, with we the We know road. the spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and literally watching aircraft uh, uh, take off and land. Um, nothing more than that. Um, but I think the other side of it was when I started to travel pre-working in aviation. So, you know, I had a few years, um, as I said, with GE and, and elsewhere. For me, actually, it was the joy of travel and the joy of flying. Right. So it wasn't, you know, the business end of things. It is the vision of, you know, what this gives the opportunity as it gave to me, but I think we see it today, the opportunity, um, you, you pick anything you want, uh, out there, but we have Ukrainians today in Ireland who ordinarily, if we didn't have flying and we didn't have accessible flying would have probably gone over the border into Poland or, mm. you know, Lithuania or maybe Germany. And that's where they will be residing today. But we have the opportunity and they have the opportunity to be here in numbers in Ireland because of flying. So that's a joy of flying and all that sort of experience, uh, uh, whether that is, uh, the ability to backpack in Thailand, the ability for, you know, uh, an Indian, um, uh, graduate to do a master's in Ireland. Um, uh, to go and see those places and have those experiences, uh, to go and get a, you know, an operation in the United States that for whatever reason cannot be done in, in your home country, that, that sort of, that's really what ticked my box about flying. Mm-hmm. And if I were to sort of, uh, think of, you know, one experience I had at that time that resonated with me. I had been in Latin America, um, uh, working in, in, uh, in a jungle area for probably three months in power generation and, um, uh, trekking by foot, um, uh, spent two or three days coming out of there and traveled on what would have been then a, um, the domestic airline in Brazil, uh, part of Varic, which is no longer with us. Um, and I came out on a flight there asleep, um, worn out. And today when you're on flights, um, Jarlett, you quite often get handed a, um, a hot, a hot cloth to, uh, wipe your face. Mm-hmm. Well, I woke up to a Brazilian flight attendant rubbing my face with the, with the white cloth. So that's the joy of flying. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that whole experience, obviously for every one of those experiences, uh, you can, you will hear counter experiences of missed flights, 
loss, baggage, security. So why are we in this business? We're in the business to write all those things, to make mm. flying a pleasure. Yeah, and so, so many people, as you say, are in this business because of Guinness Peach Aviation. I feel like there's like a, a graduating class nearly that came out of that company and Tony Ryan's influence. Can you tell us a little bit about what made that organization so special and what was it about the man, Tony Ryan, that had this impact on so many? Yeah, clearly Tony was prepared to go where, you know, almost no man had gone before. Uh, certainly with respect to this industry. And by the time I arrived to Guinness Pete Aviation, um, I had missed that first wave. So I, uh, you know, so I could only hear the stories and Tony had operated the company with his finger on the pulse and he had what would be seen today like a an investment or commodity bank trading floor. And when nobody had technology, and we're talking about, you know, the late 80s and early 90s, Tony was really a, a driver for, uh, for technology. So he, we had this trading floor with three to four very large screens on which contemporaneously ran, you know, how much money we were owed by customers or what the new leads were for the company or what the strategies were or a profile of a particular customer opportunity or indeed the performance of an aircraft. And the whole company, he worked on the basis that things had to be done every day. Hmm. So this meeting met every single day and whoever happened to be in Shannon, which, you know, might have been a lot of people on a on a Monday and very few people other days of the week. Uh, but the meeting was run and people called in from all over the world. No matter where you were in the world, that drive to get something done every day meant that you sent a fax religiously every night from wherever you were. And all those faxes were collated in a... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and shared on, under a kind of a coding system to uh, every stakeholder in the company. So it was all about daily actions and speed. Um, he had big visions, clearly, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but also, um, it was run very, very democratically. There was a kind of a Dutch style directness or that kind of, you know, uh, association we have with, with, uh, Israeli technology companies where they can debate and criticize and put ideas out there, but there are no grudges held the following day. So Tony allowed people to, you know, he could savage you, but not on a personal basis. Mm, he it was on the ideas. Know, yeah. And so I think. Um, these things feed themselves and there was a kind of a bit of a swagger, um, you know, masters of the universe that with the success that built up, obviously that, 
that leads them to some fallibility and it had some problems down the road, but it did allow GPA, its executives led by Tony to do, you know, some wonderful things in aircraft leasing. And just to leave you with a sense of, you know, where Tony was so ahead of the game, even setting aside aircraft leasing and what he tried to do in terms of bringing some of the best technology businesses in aircraft engine repair, maintenance, painting, and other ideas, you know, all into, into Shannon's side as it was at the time. One of the things that Tony tried to do around 1990, uh, just before sort of the uh, metamorphosis of uh, GPA and its failed IPO in 92, um, uh, and, you know, the transition of the business into what's today Aircap and GCAS and who have merged and are, you know, where the two largest leasing businesses in the world. So GPA never went away. Um, but Tony <coughs> recognized that air traffic management and air traffic control, particularly in Europe, was a major block. And to illustrate that point, um, Jarlett, I made my first flight at 16 years of age. I paid 33 pounds to fly with Dan Air from Dublin to Gatwick. And the flight took 52 minutes. If you can remember the last time, or anyone that might be listening to this might remember, that they flew from Dublin to London in 52 minutes. Um, it's been at least an hour and 15 minutes <clears throat> for most of the last 20 years. Yeah. So we've spent billions of dollars on designing new models of aircraft in, you know, two or three cycles since that each in turn burn 10 or 15 or 20% less fuel and are more reliable and have all these other attributes. But what we didn't do with air traffic management was we, we're now flying, you know, burning fuel for another half hour than we should be. And Tony's vision was to privatize all of air traffic management. And he offered at the time $100 million as a kind of a, a seed equity to try to break that morass away from, you know, government and national control uh, and so forth. Hmm. So uh, we still haven't gotten there, um, but that's was the that was the you know the the kind of innovation that people were open to at that time. Yeah, it's obviously had an impact on you. Like wherever you've gone from uh, Odyssey Aviation right through to, uh, as you say, going to China, the ability to do business and have those ambitions is uh, it, it's one of your calling cards to have that drive to go forward and ask questions that others aren't asking. Would you agree that that impact that Tony Ryan has in shaping you as a business person, as an investor, as someone who can make good business decisions was significant? Look, we collectively, all of that alumni, you know, we... I mean, there will be people out there who, you know, at the time of the IPO didn't cash in their chips and were 
possibly critical, you know, at the time they took on loans and so forth. But if they now look back and you look at that alumni and, you know, the sea change that instead of, you know, me having a lifelong career in engineering in Aer Lingus, I, I probably never would have anyway, but I could have. And, you know, I could name several colleagues who had been working with Burlington Industries in Shannon or were in an accountant's office or were in an estate agent. I live in, you know, family home in Ennis today that worked in an estate agent in Ennis hmm. or whatever it was. That leap, that paradigm shift, um, that move through the Rubicon, which Tony, you know, uh, almost Star Trek, like he transported us from, you know, ordinary planet to, uh, these, uh, elevated, um, uh, chambers of business, <clears throat> but he, he instilled then a belief and a confidence in, uh, you know, that Irish people and indeed Irish people abroad hmm. could, uh, could operate at the very highest levels of industries that, you know, frankly, were not on our radar screen. You know, Ireland had a history in aviation, you know, which many of us, you know, uh, are well aware of, um, uh, but not necessarily in aircraft production, aircraft finance, uh, you know, big airlines or any of that stuff. But you know, Charlotte, how many of those names, how many CEOs of airlines, of now aircraft manufacturing companies, uh, you know, engine manufacturers, and of course, leasing companies um, that have come from that space. Hmm. So he definitely um, created uh, that particular uh, window. Um, and then all credit to his alumni, because within all those individuals, you know, they clearly had what it takes uh, as individuals uh, to make that happen. And if, yes. if I talk, you know, my story is only one of you know, 20 or 50 or a hundred. Um, and you know, my story is I go to China, I have a customer, an airline group, um, uh, Hainan airlines as they were, and they were kind of parallel in a way, because it's a brand new airline founded in the early nineties, it follows the same path upward trajectory. You know, it's a small private airline in Hainan mm -hmm. province yeah. in China with three very ambitious guys at the helm. And they finally in, um, uh, in the, um, uh, around 2010, they moved to a position where they can operate outside China. And quite often from the outside looking in, we hear about all this Chinese expansion all over the world from the logical, which is, you know, Lenovo buys Hewlett Packard and IBM to the illogical that they're going to set up a massive new airport in Athlone or somewhere. Um, yes. But the way China was working at that point uh, in the late uh, around the financial crisis, 
was they had moved from investing in bonds, creating pipelines for uh, natural resources, whether that's oil, gas, or minerals, um, proven resource to get back to China. And they had moved on from refinancing their banks from 2004 to 2007 to this desire to create national champions who would go abroad, export, um, be expert companies on a global scale, and of course, repatriate technology or ideas or management principles to China. And they were prepared to leverage those companies to do that. So the three steps where that National Development and Reform Commission, NDRC, would approve your strategy as a company. Mm -hmm. The Ministry of Commerce would approve your plan. And then State Administration of Foreign Exchange, SAFE, would approve you going from RMB or uh, uh, UN to whatever the international currency was that you needed to go out and spend. So. You could not actually, as a Chinese corporate, no matter how much money you had, how much success you had, private or state-owned, if you didn't fit into that national championship, champion role, there was no way out. And as I said, Lenovo had done it in computers, and we know Huawei for their you know, mobile and handset technology, and Sani did it with construction equipment. And these guys, H&A, finagle their way into being airlines, tourism, transport, leasing, and so forth. And they had their first foray into Australia in 2010, and they bought a company that was in administration, all the, the aviation assets, Allco, and it was a $2 billion company, highly leveraged, that they bought for 85 million, and they borrowed 130 million to buy the 85. Jeez. They put 30 million in their pockets. They paid fees of around 50 million to close the deal, 15 million to close the deal. They spent 85 on the company. They now had a, a, an aircraft leasing company with 50 or 60 aircraft. And they asked me to help them remarket the aircraft because the aircraft were all coming to the end of leases and no one in, in the prior Alto had ever done that. Right. right. So having done asking that, you to upcycle up these planes. Yes. So having done that uh, little job, they, uh, I came back to Ireland, they installed an American management. They had an Australian, you know, existing team. They jettisoned in two or three Chinese um, trusted lieutenants, all very capable, but, you know, inexperienced. And they discovered that they had a cluster something um, <laughs> uh, that, that wasn't working. And they called me back after two or three months and said, can you spend a month or two in the business and try to fix this or understand it? And I was able to come back to the CEO of H&A Group six weeks later to tell him I have good news and bad news. The good news is I fully understand what's going on. The bad news is your 85 million is worth nothing. Oh. So this was their 
first foray abroad. And if this failed, they were going nowhere. And we fixed that company. And that's another story. But if I, I fast forward by 2015, five years later, this group, mainly through foreign acquisition, had borrowed 210 billion US dollars. My Lord. My Lord. And they had moved into Fortune 85 position. And they had 22 airlines. They had the largest airport ground handling business uh, in the world. They had one of the, the three or four largest maintenance repair overhaul businesses in the world. They had 30% of Hilton hotels, 100% uh, of Radisson hotels, 100% uh, of H, uh, um, NH hotels, which is a large group in Europe that with the lower profile. Uh, they bought 10% of Deutsche Bank <laughs> and so forth. And, um, obviously their eyes were bigger than their stomach. And people asked me in later years, um, you know, when, when that, in, it, it was always going to blow up. There was never enough equity there. And there was always going to be a situation which occurred in 2017 and 18 and 19 where the Chinese uh, government uh, needed to stabilize some of these aggressive uh, companies that they had, you know, encouraged to go abroad and facilitated with state-owned bank loans, but then were kind of losing control of. And people would often ask me, are you not embarrassed we were involved with this? And, you know, my kind of answer is, look, when your parents are alcoholics, your job is to drive them home, give them good advice. Sure. And that's what yeah. we did. And the good news is that virtually everything that we were involved with, um, succeeded. Um, and, uh, uh, the legacy of that today, um, is the company that I got involved with in, uh, 2010 which was this acquisition of Olco, which became Hong Kong Aviation Capital. We knew we couldn't get enough equity from China. So we came up with an idea in 2011 to publicly list in China. And we created a company called Bohai Leasing. And we reversed our shares in July, 2012. Eventually it took us almost a year to do it, uh, onto the Shenzhen stock exchange. So. Whilst we were Chinese in background, we were truly a, a fully foreign company in Hong Kong, if you consider Hong Kong separate to China. Yes. Um, and we were the first, and I think only 100% foreign-owned company to ever list itself in mainland China, which we did. That company, uh, over the course of 2012 to 2015, we raised... Uh, $2.6 billion in new equity. And that company then, you know, as well as growing in aviation, uh, uh, bought and developed from GE, uh, one of the top three, I think it was around number two globally in sea container leasing, uh, a company called Seco, which Bohai still owns. 
And of course, um, things come full circle to my friends and colleagues who had been with me when we founded uh, Orbs, and um, and I think people will know today who are interested in aircraft leasing, and even if you're not, um, a lot of that team morphed over into what is Avalon today. And Bohai Leasing, we acquired Avalon in 2015. And so for a lot of people in Ireland, there is Avalon, but their 70% owner today and 100% previously is a Chinese entity, Bohai. So there, there comes full circle, I mm. guess, to the man in the background. Well, can we... Talk a little bit about culture, because a lot of the things that you've said there will have people's jaws on the floor, especially the uh, part of it, as you say, of being an Irish man abroad, of being this fish out of water, carving a path that hasn't been carved before by uh, a foreigner in that land. How was business and negotiation specifically different in that culture to what we'd understand here in the Western world. So, Gerald, the more you know, the less you know. <laughs> and over those sort of uh, um, 10 years where I increasingly got into the Chinese labyrinth, I might be back in Dublin and I get an elbow or a nod or a wink and Jesus, don't look you must know how the Chinese culture works. <laughs> Tell us how it's, how it operates. Um, but you know, what I discovered is that you know, China is no different, uh, at an individual level to ourselves. And it is all down to personal friendships and, and relationships. Clearly there are different personalities there. I think the Irish abroad, we travel well because we have a chameleon nature, you know, we can adapt. Yeah. Um, and fundamentally, I talked earlier about the joy of flying. Behind all of these sort of ambitious businesses and, you know, all the sort of cliches one can trot out. IRR, return on equity, merger acquisition, you know, um, uh, uh, change the, the, the paradigm, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. The business chat. All the stuff that goes on there. Inevitably, there was a lot of fun and laughs along the way. And um, a sense of humor and a bit of crack. And my own experience, the Chinese, you know, is that they really have, um, you know, and I don't mean this in any gender way, you know, I'm going to say a boyish sense of humor, but you could say a girlish sense of humor. Um, but they have a, a young at heart sense of humor. Um, and to, to kind of typify those things, um, I, I mentioned in 2015, you know, that growth and that acquisition of Bohai, um, you know, um, uh, uh, of Avalon 
and Seiko and, you know, creating what was at that point a company with, um, uh, or, or today has, you know, something of the order of $50 billion of assets, Wow! but, uh, with nominally, um, you know, depending on how you value things and how the market varies, but six to $10 billion of equity. I did a spell a year. I, I kind of got a, in football parlance, a free transfer because H and A had borrowed 22 billion from China Development Bank and China Development Bank needed to list one of their five arms. And since it was a social economic bank, they didn't really have a lot of stuff that was very commercial. So they either were going to list their securities business or their leasing business. And their leasing business was a business that we and H&A had sold to them. It was called Shenzhen Leasing. That's CDB Leasing or what's in Ireland today, CDB Aviation. So I got the, the, the job for a year to help them list that business in Hong Kong. And I came back at the end of a year to H&A and I met with the two joint chairmen, one of them unfortunately passed on since Wang Zhen and, and the CEO. And the idea was that they were going to welcome me back to the group, but what was the next big gig going to be? And we talked clearly about aircraft leasing and how, you know, Avalon was going to move to the next level with acquisitions and things like that. And we talked about some other businesses, technology businesses. And Chairman Wang Zhen, you know, he would have fitted well into a kind of an Austin Powers movie. You could have imagined him with a white cat on his lap, <laughs> wanting to take over the world. But with that sort of smile, um, and you know, you we can we can people can can research him off offline. Unfortunately, uh, he had an accident and died in Paris. And, you know, that creates its own or in France and that creates its own, uh, story is, is this another, uh, who shot JFK or Elvis Presley? Is he still alive or whatever? Um, but when we got talking about that, he, uh, he raised the idea of wanting to have this massive airline leasing group and being Irish, I said, well, Wang Zhen, you know, rather than being deferential, I said, why are we wasting our time? Why don't we just buy Boeing? And he immediately sparked up a lady and said, yes, yes, you're right. <laughs> so of course he, he realized the humor of it, but he appreciated it. Yeah. And you would have those kind of moments where you created something simple for them. They had a, um, uh, they had a guru from Singapore ran a, a technology business called, uh, called Silver Lake. And they would roll this gentleman in on every third or fourth, um, board meeting. And they'd hold all these group board meetings and he would speak as I'm speaking now for too long, he would speak for an hour, uh, without stop with some 
convoluted um, uh, ideas around business, um, probably beyond my level. But I remember in one of those conversations, he finished up with an argument that was a basically that the sum of the parts is more than the whole. The two and two does not equal four. It can be five or six or seven. And Chairman Wang Jen turned around <laughs> to me and said, Donald, you've been with us from the beginning. You tell the professor, how does the sum of the parts is worth more than the whole work in H&A group? And I had that moment to react. And I said, well, of course, two plus two may be five or six for you, professor. But in H&A, we do zero plus zero equals a hundred, <laughs> which is really, you, how do you make something out of nothing? And that is probably, you know, a lot of that entrepreneurial ship that has come out of Ireland. And I'm not hmm. putting that badge on my own back. You are going to, you know, going forward, um, and over the years, indeed, Charlotte, you, you, you know, you, you'll have come across many of those of stories. Yeah. And, and they are ground up stories. And yeah. Toby Ryan did that. He really created from zero. He worked in Aer Lingus and he put together something that was already there. And he turned a couple of zeros into something valuable and took it on. And, you know, ultimately. You know, not that Ryanair didn't take money to create, but he did it again. Um, and, you know, would one have thought in, you know, the 1970s or 80s in Ireland, uh, or when, our, when, when you know, uh, Ryanair was trying to push us all into Romanian-built back 111s to go to Luton, that this was going to be the biggest airline in Europe. Uh, and eclipse British Airways, Lufthansa and Air France. Um, so I guess dreaming big, uh, you know, it doesn't mean your dreams are going to be fulfilled, but if we all dream big, one in a hundred of us will make it happen. Mm. You know, we should talk a little bit, especially given the, the place that we find ourselves in as a global economy right now and sitting here in London with the rail network ground to a halt, uh, strike action now. I'm just, I think an alert just pinged up on my phone momentarily uh, about hundreds of British Airways workers at Heathrow who are set to walk out during the summer holidays. During all of this time in the business, Donald, you've must have had similar situations occur. You, of course, come into the business in 2001, in July, I notice, on your LinkedIn. Uh, you know, in September, 9-11 takes place. The things that you've witnessed in terms of tumultuous moments in global history that have had huge effects on airlines and aviation, what have you noticed as common threads through them and what are you, when was there a time in all of those events that you wondered what, what might happen next, uh, that this, this may not work out well? 
Yeah. Look, I can wonder, I wish I had the answers. Um, the touching on that and going back to 9-11, I, I was in Poland when things unfolded over with LOT. So a lot of people will remember where they were and watching TV screens and, and getting those uh, excerpts, you know, those short pieces of information. But we did say that the world would never be the same, or at least if you were in the US, the world would never be the same. And um, from a business point of view, the business that uh, a group had founded, um, a small group, five that became 13 people, uh, was called Lombard Aviation Capital, became Orbis Aviation Capital. Um, the leasing business in um, pre-9-11 was like the Scottish Premiership that was Celtic and Rangers. There was GE Capital's business and AIG's ILFC. And okay. everybody else played for third place. Mm. And I think Boeing Capital, so those two businesses was, were 35 billion each. And Boeing Capital was about 3 billion. And so the business, RBS, that was created by this group, you know, in Dublin, of which I was one, um, and, you know, some uh, very esteemed colleagues, that business is now SNBC run by Peter Barrett, an ex-engineer, I should add. Um, and, and he's done a, a brilliant job with that business. And clearly, uh, someone who'd be well-known to people who are involved in aircraft leasing, um, uh, Donald Slattery, who leads Avalon, was at the helm of that business. Um, but that became the new third place, you know, the guys breaking through to play for, uh, you know, the European Cup uh, yes. positions. And um, today we have 25 businesses north of 5 billion. Uh, but they broke that mold at that particular time. So... In a way, 9-11 created the opportunity because the banks withdrew. A lot of people were afraid. We were owned by a bank. And the first thing we did, we, we weren't getting su huge support to match our ambition in April, May, June, July 20, uh, 2001 from the bank. Um, so we took it on board that we would look at every aviation transaction they had. They had 167 transactions in Royal Bank of Scotland. You know, these were lending transactions. And we did a traffic lights on them, you know, green, amber, red. And the six deals that we said were red, <laughs> they collapsed in September or October 2001. And the bank woke up to the fact that we've got guys who know exactly what we've been, you know, where we've been dabbling. Right. And all the course of the following year, you know, we went to them with some very simple ideas, but one of those ideas was survivors and thrivers. Who are the ten, 10 airlines that are going to survive the 9-11 the crisis and move forward and, and thrive as well? And let's give them each half a billion dollars in uh, for the type of assets and in the type of transactions that make sense for us. 
And that's what jettisoned that business, you know, through uh, that cycle. So you ask the question, you know, all of those tumultuous changes that we've seen and, you know, where is the, the gel in that ointment? I think the gel in that ointment has always been when you can create that collegiate aligned, you know, I'm not saying sycophantic, but when you get people on a team and they're playing for the team and to really typify that, um, I'm on the board of a low cost airline, uh, via jet that, um, is, has, is, you know, has a, a Tony Ryan like founder in Madame Tao, um, a lady that, you know, has become obviously, uh, uh, Vietnam's first, um, uh, female billionaire that has businesses in aviation, banking and property. But why I bring them up is I've been with them. Uh, I've, I've known them for 10 years or so. I've been doing things with them as a friend. I would drop into Vietnam and spend a Saturday afternoon at a whiteboard with Madame Tao and her husband, Dr. Hung and some other people, uh, you know, for a number of years. But on t in 2019, uh, I joined their board and I'm involved in quite a number of aspects of their business. But when we hit COVID, they have 5,400 people, 5,400 staff. And Vietnam and Thailand, where they operate airlines, there was no pandemic pay. There is no social welfare parachute. There were no government grants or soft loans. <laughs> there is no banking sector as you would have in France or Germany, you know, where you will get banks bailing out Lufthansa, Air France, and so forth. Um, the government shut down the country from the 20th of March, 2020 to the 15th of March, 22, no international flights, 60% of your business closed. Wow. And everybody staff member moved to 50% salary as early as March, 2020, and at times dropped down to 30% salary. And they're now back up thankfully at 70%. But it is that, you know, pride, joined up thinking, um, uh, shared uh, uh, experience to, to make something better. And, um, you know, I've had the pleasure uh, of working in, you know, a number of companies or even seeing from the outside a number of companies, in other words, people you did business with, that you could admire what they were doing. And so I think that's uh, those cycles, those inevitable troughs that you're going to get in an industry like aviation. You know, we've now seen it with the pandemic, but, you know, whether it's a volcanic ash or it's you know, it's more localized where there is a, you know, a Gulf war or, uh, whatever it is, um, 
the gel and the ointment in a lot of these aviation businesses goes back to that, you know, what, what you asked about earlier on. What is it about people that work that, who have that vocation? And it's not, of course, unique to aviation or aircraft leasing or aircraft manufacturing. And you'll get people trotting out um, uh, good cliches like they're all aerosexuals. Um, but there is definitely a collegiate environment there that allows people to have joy and shared experience, but also to be resilient when the chips are down. Hmm. Um, and, you know, yes, it's an extremely ruthlessly competitive industry. Yes, all these companies are sharing, you know, information with each other about safety, procedures, um, uh, how to make things better. So, you know, one may take the view that from the outside looking in, that, that say a Michael O'Leary is against the rest of the world. And yes, you know, all through Ryanair, you know, they are not only very, very competitive and combative, but they are also full of key partnerships. You know, on one hand, Michael O'Leary may publicly criticize Boeing, but yet at the same time, you know, they're key partners now for 30 years plus. Um, and and they, they influence aircraft design and production and, you know, all sorts of modifications, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's probably uh, the factor for me that that uh, that collegiate uh, um, shared experience uh, amongst people in this industry that makes it work. You know, when I hear you talk, and it's been such a joy to have a conversation with you, Donald, you have your measured way of seeing things and doing things, and it's quite clear how well that works in a management situation. It then shocks me to think of your involvement in horse racing because of the number of variables that are 100% out of your hands. Now, yes, you could argue that there's similarities there between horse racing and business, but I grew up in horse racing. I know how easy it is for a horse to break its leg just trotting around a paddock or just turn its head sideways in a horse in a horse box and suddenly the investment's toast. What attracted you to it? And tell me this. Have you had higher highs from horse racing than you will ever have in business, or is it the other way around? Um, so there's a lot of questions there. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, so the horse racing, you know, um, there's a Tipperary connection. My mother grew up uh, between the Silver Mines and Nina. And, you know, 250 years of farming background, uh, in um, uh, in in that area, um, we'd spend summers there, uh, and they, there were always horses on the farm. Uh, they weren't race horses, but there were horses. So I think that's where it started. Um, as a teenager, I don't know why, uh, but myself and a couple of my peers at school, you know, we we got into um, horse racing and. I would work at the local bookies in Dundrum Village, make a few bob, <laughs> study the form, 
And at some point in time in my teens, I started getting interested in pedigrees. But I, like a lot of people with horse racing, you end up having these kind of superstitious, you know, likes or, or, or dislikes or bias. And I would have been a guy, if I was interested in horse racing, I would have liked Tony Ives as jockey riding for Bill O'Gorman out in Newmarket, great over, you know, a sprint distance. Um, and you, you have, so you had certain bias like that, but I think one of the things you develop from business and you touched on it there, Charlotte, you know, in horse racing, as people always said, or indeed that whole industry, and you know, we've been talking about vocations. I mean, nobody or the vast majority of people, you know, no matter what we think about Coolmore or Darley or whatever else, the vast majority of people who work in the thoroughbred racing industry, it is an absolute vocation. You know, everybody yeah. is underpaid from, you know, the people we see up front, like jockeys and trainers and breeders and so on. Okay, there's a subsidy from owners and and uh, and maybe betting and other things, but all the people behind the scenes who ride out, who who are vets, who are um, you know stable hands, etc. Uh, etc. Et um, who are mucking out uh, stables, they're doing this in this day and age because vocation. So. Um, the only certainty, of course, as we say, is the uncertainty. And once you recognize that, it's like everything else. How do you, you know, in that uncertain world, how do you develop a lot of knowledge or knowledge that improves your chances to be whatever you deem success to be? So, yes, to answer your question, um, uh, you know, those business, the, the business enjoyment that, uh, that I can have, the things that would satisfy you are not because of the success of aircraft leasing businesses. I get more joy from being able to tell you, as I alluded to earlier, that we kept 5,400 people in jobs in Vietnam through the worst, you know, the worst, um, downturn to affect the airline industry since it's in inception or, you know, Maybe I'm exaggerating it. Maybe the Second World War or somewhere else was, you know, was was similar. But uh, certainly, I would say on a par with that is, and you would understand this, having been involved in horse racing. I've been involved in the last ten or fifteen years in initially owning a couple of racehorses that would have raced over the jumps, hurdling and chasing. Uh, Eddie O'Grady uh, kindly trained them, but they were horses that, you know, unfortunately won and then were immediately afterwards fatally injured. And so uh, I went out to Hong Kong, didn't have horses because I wasn't at home to enjoy them, but started to breed uh, from mares, brood mares, because that's something I could do from a distance. And, you know, uh, I don't have to be real time to see them racing because the breeding cycle is 11 months or so. Um, but from about 10 brood mares now, 
and a current six. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to breed, you know, two good group horses. Um, uh, one of which fortunately we couldn't sell. So there's the, you know, the certain, the uncertainty you breed something, you can't sell it. You're forced to keep it. Mm. You can't, can't sell it again. You can't give it away. You don't want to wreck the mare, uh, her value. So you don't want to put the horse through the sales and have a low price. So what do you do? You take a chance, put it, put, put him into pre-training and he turns out to be something that, um, you know, doesn't match all of those theoretical, uh, things that, uh, seasoned people in the industry look for. They talk about, you know, uh, obviously pedigree, but they talk about confirmation and and scope and uh, uh, and um, uh, um, a certain sort of walk, etc. Yes. So this this horse we have currently who's racing this year meets none of those criteria, except he does the one important thing when he's on the track and things begin to speed up is he runs quickly. <laughs> That's all that so, matters. Uh, not every you know footballer looks the part, and I don't know who it was uh, who's associated with horse racing, but you know this idea also that every half brother or brother or sister to a top racehorse has to be another one. You know, it's uh, it, you know if that was the case, um, then. You know, why didn't Maradona's brother play for Argentina? <laughs> and yeah. So that's horse racing. Yeah, yeah and it is. Uh, it is fascinating. Like it is. I, I didn't get it when I was younger and around it. But uh, I guess it is, as you say, it's the unknown. It's that. But, and our racing colours to leave you with this, Charlotte. Um, you know, you try and personalise things, but my wife has uh has unusual and uh and beautiful green eyes and um a shade of green my own are blue but generally uh tinged with with uh white and plenty of red <laughs> so um but the racing colors we have we have three children uh the eldest of whom uh, our daughter Roshin is blue like myself. Um, the middle man who uh, is has now decided he wants to become a pilot, having trained as a geologist, uh, are green like his mother. And the youngest uh, is gray, um, uh, you know, which is a, somewhat like one of my brothers. And um, so... Uh, a very simple set of racing colors that represent the, uh, the, 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 the three sets of eyes in the family. Lovely, lovely stuff. Well, Donald Boylan, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the Flying Irishman. And uh, I really do appreciate you breaking it down for us in the way you did. I don't think that we'd ever get an explanation quite like it from anyone else. And uh, I wanted to say a huge thank you for you to take the time to do this conversation. It really means a lot. Charlotte means a lot to me. Thank you for listening and uh, guiding me through this.
Next time on The Flying Irishman, we meet the man who turned around Ryanair's public image, Kenny Jacobs. I think having everything under the strap line always getting better. And that was the language that we spoke to customers in, staff in and shareholders in. It really captured the imagination of everybody involved. And sure, yeah, it brings everyone on board. It, it, nearly... it brings everyone on board. And it was, you know, it was one kitchen cooking that message, whether you were serving it up to the different types of audiences, be they customers, uh, regulators, shareholders uh, or employees. Huge thanks to Donald Boylan for this episode. Thank you for listening, subscribing and commenting wherever you're getting your podcasts. I will see you next time for the Kenny Jacobs episode of The Flying Irishman. Subscribe to and leave a review of The Flying Irishman on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. Sound production, editing and research by Jarlath Regan. Special thanks to Declan Ryan and Ellen James. Flying Irishman is an Irishman Abroad podcast.